So if you were to ever go to my house and look through my chest of drawers, which I hope you wouldn't do, you would find a bunch of old shirts that have holes and are stained that I just keep. And I don't know why. I don't know why I hang on to these. It drives my wife crazy. I'll put on a shirt to go do something. She'll be like, why are you even, why? Why are you wearing that? <laughs> it's embarrassing for her to go out in public with me when I put on one of those old shirts. She won't even go to Walmart with me. <laughs> it's like, that's where I belong. <laughs> and, and I say that because this is our Christian life. I should take off that old rag and put on something new especially if I'm going to take my beautiful bride to Walmart. <laughs> so our main point this morning is that as Christians, we should reflect the walk that we have with Christ by walking away from our old life and embracing the new life that we have in Christ. So the context of Colossians here, before we get into our main passage, is that it was written by the Apostle Paul around A.D. 60 to 62, while he was in prison in Rome for the first time. And during this time, he also wrote Ephesians and Philemon. It's one of the prison epistles, if you will. And Colossae was a city about 100 miles east of Ephesus in Asia Minor. And the main purpose of this book is to combat the false doctrine and the heresy that arose there. This false teaching seemed to be the beginning of what later developed into Gnosticism. It contained several characteristics. It was Jewish in nature, stressing the need for observing Old Testament laws and ceremonies. It was philosophical, laying emphasis on some special, deeper knowledge. It involved the worship of angels as mediators to God. It was exclusive, stressing the special privilege and perfection of those select few who belong to this philosophical elite, if you will. And it was also Christological, but however, it denied the deity of Christ. So as we turn in our Bibles to Colossians 3, we understand that Paul is dealing with some pretty big theological problems that have cropped up in this church. So the immediate context of the passage, we'll turn first to Colossians 2, verse 8, and then verses 20 through 23. Paul is giving his readers the instruction to not be deceived by crafty ideas and begin to walk down a path that is of man-made religion. So turn with me to Colossians 2, 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly 
indulgence. In our main passage, I'll just go ahead and read through the whole thing. Colossians 3, 1 through 17, he says, Therefore, always take special note, right? When the Bible says, therefore, ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? So he's responding to himself in these previous verses where he says these, these other things are useless. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its, old, with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with wisdom, teaching, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with hymns and songs and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. So there's a very simple outline in this lesson here, is that we have been raised with Christ. And if we're raised with Christ, then we should look like it. And so he gives us three things, or one really main point. He says, seek the things that are above. You see that in the first four verses. And then to, in order to seek things above, he gives us a very practical way to do that. And in the next a handful of verses, you've got 5 through 11, where he says, take off the old life. And in verses 12 through 17, he says, put on the new life. Right? Easier said than done sometimes, but he gives us practical application of what it looks like to seek things above so that our lives reflect the fact that we have been raised with Christ. So back to verse 1 here. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, if you have been raised with Christ, this refers to the fact that you are a born-again believer. You have placed your faith in Christ, and you now identify with him. 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is my favorite chapter in Scripture. I think it outlines really how to live the Christian life. If you are a new believer and you don't understand quite what that looks like, Romans 6 is a great place to go. It's also a great refresher just as we, as we grow more mature in our faith to understand the things in Romans 6, what they're all about. And so Paul, he talks about in these first 11 verses of Romans 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be, how shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so we get this picture of baptism, and as believers, we participate in what we call believer's baptism, where you're dunked in the tub. It doesn't save you. It's not magical, spiritual water. It's you identifying with the dead, buried, and resurrected Savior. And we do all sorts of things in our lives that identify us with the groups that we're a part of. Uh, I really like to ride motorcycles. You guys probably know that. Some of you like, some of you know that. And so Sarah and I, we went down the other day to check out this motorcycle rally that was going on in Durango. And there's some crazy looking people that are there, right? They're all tatted up and they got weird looking clothes on and that's not my style and so but you see these people that are trying to identify with this certain crowd and so they're doing all the things that that would identify them as a biker right or as part of this group and we do it with work we do it with church we do it with school we identify with the people that are around us and so as through baptism we identify with Christ and as we seek the things above We essentially, it means to live obediently to God while on this earth, right? We we take that first step of obedience through believer's baptism. And we should seek heavenly direction in our earthly lives. And scripture is clear that as we become Christians, our citizenship is transferred to heaven. Therefore, our daily living should reflect that citizenship. Our identity no longer belongs here, right? If you have been raised with Christ, if you have placed your faith in him and you identify as a Christian, your citizenship is no longer on this earth. Turn with me to Philippians chapter three. Just a couple books over, backwards. One book backwards. Philippians chapter three, verses 20 and 21 He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Our lives should reflect our citizenship in heaven. He says, seek things above. Back in verse uh, Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. This word set in the Greek, I'm going to try to pronounce it, zetiat, I could be totally off on that. This word set in the Greek is of utmost importance. He says, set your mind on the things above. It means that we should seek to strive earnestly. We should seek to strive earnestly. One more quick uh, reference, Matthew 6, 30 through 33. Matthew 6, 30 through 33. Jesus says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, he will not, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry about them, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And then he says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So as we eagerly seek, as we earnestly seek the things above, not worrying about our lives, but seeking to honor God with our lives, I think of of what it means to be earnest in that and, and to be devoted to that. And I think of professional sports, right? I you know, I'm not a huge professional sports fan. I do like to watch professional football every now and then. And I think about those guys who all they do is they eat, sleep, and breathe football. Am I right, Jerome? Yeah. <laughs> they eat, sleep, and breathe football. And when they lose, it drives them crazy. And the rest of us are thinking, it's just a game. What's wrong with you? But that's their life. They are earnestly seeking to win that game, right? To win the biggest prize, to go to the Super Bowl, to make as much money as they can or whatever it is that they're up for. They are earnestly seeking that. They are living for that. Our hearts should be so intensely focused on the finished work of Christ on the cross and his eternal position of power and authority that we can't help but live for him. And it should bother us when we fail to do so. That's how earnestly we should seek the things above. What Paul is saying here is that this, is that life in this world will be better if it is lived by the power beyond this world. The power of the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Christ. So again, in verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. The things that Paul is talking about in this verse are moral, not necessarily physical. For example, everyone wants a house to live in. We all want a roof over our head. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But when we live for that, that becomes a moral issue. A physical thing just became a problem in our lives that isn't a problem in and of itself. It becomes a moral issue when we live for that. And most people, they want to experience marriage or have a lifelong committed relationship uh, with the spouse. But when our desire for that is so strong that we go outside of the confines of marriage to do that, we've entered into a really deep moral issue. So these issues that he's talking about are, are moral. Verses three and four says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. These verses remind us that seeking things above require us to, to rely and submit to the authority of Christ in our lives. Where is Jesus now? Is he still in the grave? Is he still dead and buried? Right, absolutely not. We understand that through the Great Commission that Jesus has, when he appeared to his disciples, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All that authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Our world is telling us that we need to be satisfied instantly. And when we get outside of living underneath God's authority, we tend to make lapses in our moral judgment. We compromise Christian values. We compromise obedience to God's word for the things that we want right now. And these verses, they, they tell us that our time is coming and that we need to remain strong and committed to Christ until that day comes. The fact that our lives are hidden with Christ in God means that we're protected. Right? Obviously, as Christians, we'll still face danger. We might face persecution. We might face physical harm but we're protected from the eternal consequences of sin. And if we're protected, then we should live with the expectancy that our time with him is coming as he will return to gather his church. As a Christian, you have the ability to live underneath and through the power and the authority of Jesus. No one else has that. So as we seek the things above, Paul gives us two very simple instructions on how to accomplish that task. Like we talked about earlier, the simple outline. Seek the things above. Okay, how do we do that? Take off the old life. Just like that t-shirt that I won't go to Walmart with. Well, I will, but Sarah won't go with me. Okay, take off the old life. Verses 5 and 6. He says, therefore, consider the members of your body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amount to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. In verse 5, Paul states the obvious. In one of those therefore statements, 
He says, you're in Christ. You're dead to sin. He then gives us this list of immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And the sin of idolatry, which is what we talked about in Sunday school this morning, the sin of idolatry is one of the leading problems for Israel in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 20, God commands Israel not to go down that road, but at several times throughout their history and in their culture, they try to mesh with the people around them and they begin to worship their false gods and they suffer the consequences of it. The context of the list given here has a lot to do with, with sexual immorality, which runs rampant in our culture today. And it seems that the age in which children are exposed to things that they shouldn't see gets younger every year. And in fact, this digital age, this content is marketed to us. And the moment we go down that road, we get images that we can't unsee. And, and as the church, we have to realize, we have to understand that our culture that is surrounding us is attempting to draw us in to many of the things that Israel fell into as they embraced idolatry, which led to God's wrath. In these two verses, God is, Paul is reminding us that Jesus has already taken care of the problem. All we need to do is walk away. In fact, the Greek in, the, in this whole section has a lot to do with taking decisive, swift action. He says, throw it off like a banged up shirt, put on something new, do it now, don't wait. And that is repeated throughout this passage. Because Jesus has already taken care of the problem, Christians have no excuse in participating in the things which bring about God's wrath. Outside of God's wrath being displayed through Israel, when they were exiled to foreign nations, there are two events in which God's wrath have been displayed on the earth. Can anyone guess what those are? There's one event that's yet to come. The first being the flood in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. I've got a quote to read from a commentary that stuck out to me. It just explains these two of these. It says, The flood narrative points up towards God's power and freedom over his creation. The flood reveals God's deadly anger over sin. The flood shows that God's gracious redemption is meaningful in light of judgment and that his grace is not to be taken lightly. The flood shows the extent to which God will go to bring about holiness and rest on the earth. It is here that the godly find encouragement in God's plan for good to triumph ultimately over evil. Only one other event, which is the second event in wrath, of wrath that I'm talking about, only one other event shows that holiness among people is the object for which God will sacrifice everything else, the crucifixion of his son. The crucifixion of his son where God poured out his wrath on Jesus at the cross so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The mercy which we receive from God through the pouring out of his wrath on Jesus that we deserve should inspire us to walk away and put to death the sin that we might be entangled in. 
And then obviously the third event that will come to pass where God's wrath will be displayed on the earth again is talked about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, and in the book of Revelation where Craig has been preaching through for a while now. Well, you may be thinking, I don't have any of those things in my life. I don't have sin like that in my life. So I'm good. I might talk like a sailor from time to time. I might lie every now and then. Maybe I'm a little short-tempered, but at least I'm not cheating on my spouse or doing those other really bad things that Paul mentions in verses 5 and 6. Well, I'm sorry to let you down, but Paul, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at that first list of things that you shouldn't be involved in. He goes on, verses 7 through 9. He says, And in them also you once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them aside, put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Not only should you avoid the immorality as seen in verses 5 and 6, but you should also turn away from the things which might be more common and repulsive behaviors. When I think about these behaviors, I think about it when I, how I feel when I turn on the news and you hear politicians talk about each other with such rage and anger and malice and slander and filthy language and not to mention the lying part of it. And I pat myself on the back and I claim, well, at least I'm not like those people. And then 10 minutes later, someone does something that I don't like and there I am, right, looking just like the world. So look at the world around you. Do you match its behavior? Do you look like them? Do you live like the sanctified, set-apart Christian that you are? Paul says to discard these behaviors. Take it off and put on something new. Verse 10 and 11 is kind of a transition into what that looks like and to put on something new. Verse 10, he says, And put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So after we've discarded our old self, we are instructed to put on this new identity we have in Christ. Real quick, 2 Corinthians 5.17 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. The old, new things have come. So if you recall the moment that you came to know Jesus, you understand that you surrendered your life and that you were made new. I remember when I first came to know Jesus, I was just a, a real young boy, probably seven years old, and I had heard the gospel at church, and I was in bed one night, and I just remember feeling convicted. I, I need Jesus, right? And I remember that, and I hate to bring about feelings and emotions. I'm not that kind of a pastor, really. Uh, but I remember feeling clean. Even at that young age, I remember feeling that I, that I knew that I made the right decision, that I knew God was calling me, that I knew following him was what 
needed to happen. And you may not have that same kind of story or the story in Colossians. You may not have some extravagant conversion experience. And maybe, maybe some of you were raised in church. You were raised in Christian families and came to know Christ at a very young age. And your life doesn't look a whole lot different now than it did when you first came to know him. But I would imagine and I would hope that you would contemplate what God has saved you from. Right? Imagine who you would be had you not met Christ at a young age. And so Paul, he's making a statement here in verse 10 that this renewal process, as we place our faith in Christ, we're renewed, but it's also a process that never ends. It goes hand in hand with sanctification. When you come to saving faith in Christ, you're sanctified, you're set apart, you're given the Holy Spirit as a seal for your salvation among other things that he does in your life. And throughout your Christian life, Christ is continually sanctifying you. You're continually growing in that walk with him. You're continually being made more like Christ in your life. And then as you walk from this life into eternity, the sanctification process is complete. That's why it's so important for us to not neglect Things like time in scripture and in prayer. That's part of being continually renewed. As you open your Bible and read about the God who inspired every word of it, whose image that you are created in, it draws us closer to him. As we partake in things like the Lord's Supper and believer's baptism, we're reminded of what Christ has done for us and how we should respond. Verse 11, he continues in what it looks like to put on this new self and what this renewal looks like. He says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So we take off the old self, we put on the new self, and we live in this state of constant renewal. We begin to understand and embrace the fact that Jesus breaches all boundaries. All distinctions are removed. National distinctions, Greek or Jew in this time, Jews called all of those outside of their nation Greeks. He broke religious distinctions, circumcised and uncircumcised, cultural distinctions. Anyone foreign to the Greek culture was a barbarian and a Scythian was a savage nomad. He broke all of these distinctions and just like a Jew or a free person who became a Christian so would those who were slave or a Greek or a Gentile or of a different background normal human distinctions are overruled and transfigured by one's union in Christ it doesn't matter what your background is all Christians come under the authority of Christ and should live their lives in such a way that reflects it. Moving on to putting on the new life, verses 12 through 17. Verse 12, he says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And I want to address that first part of 
verse 12, I think it goes back to the context. I, I don't think that the context of this verse lends itself for an argument for or against predestination, right? Which is an argument that has been in in the church, a theological debate that has been among Christians for a long time now. I don't think this verse lends itself to an argument for or against that. What I think Paul is getting at when he says those who have been chosen of God, I think it goes back to the original context of the book. Remember that he was combating this false doctrine that these this false religion that was telling these people, oh, you're, you're of this chosen elite. If you, if you follow these religious practices and you do all these things and you, and you deny the deity of Christ and you're doing all these other, you're part of this elite chosen group. Paul is saying, you're not part of that group. That group doesn't exist. You are chosen of God. You are part of the church. The church being the bride of Christ people called to represent him as ambassadors to the lost world. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. We were just in 2 Corinthians 5. I should have had you keep your thumb there. We'll go back to 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we, therefore we are Excuse me. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And as we seek the things above, we're striving to represent Christ well on this earth. We should take off that old life and we should put on the new life by putting on this heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's as if these counteract our sin nature. In a moment of rage, Christians can choose to have patience. When we find ourselves about to slander someone, we can choose humility and kindness. God has given us the replacement parts for our old dead bodies, for our old sin nature. Verse 13, he says, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against any one of you, against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So beyond these virtues which we should possess, Paul, he tells, he tells us to bear with one another, that we should be able to put up with each other and forgive each other because we understand the great mercy and grace that God has given to us. And this is not a, an excuse to tolerate someone's sin by any means. It's no accident that these verses come right after the point that Paul made about Christ removing all distinctions and all boundaries. And if we're not careful, we can let those distinctions, those former distinctions, cause 
division in the body of Christ. When that does happen, when we do wrong each other, we're called to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us graciously and freely. Verse 14 it says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And above all else, we're instructed to put on love. The kind of love that we should have for each other is sacrificial and unconditional. We should love each other even when it's hard. <coughs> Excuse me. Obviously, our model for this type of love is Christ himself. His greatest display of love is that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemy of God, Christ died for us. In our world, it's, it teaches us that a self-centered, me-first type of love. We're taught to get something out of the relationships we have and that the moment that we're hurt, we should abandon ship. The sacrificial, unconditional love of Christ doesn't do that. What it does is it brings unity. And in a world that is so divided on every issue, everything, the church should stand out as a beacon of hope to the lost world. They should see the way that Christians love one another and the world around them. They should see the unity that exists within the body of believers and they should want what we have. And unfortunately, I think this is an area where many of us need the most help. It's so easy for us to write other people off, at least in our Western culture, where we've been hurt. We're often too prideful to ask for forgiveness or to forgive. And we just move on to another circle of friends or another church or another group. And we distance ourselves until we're numb to the fact that unity has been broken. And remember Paul's words here, and both the taking off the old life and the putting on the new life articulate decisive and swift action. We shouldn't wait to take the actions necessary to restore unity within the body of Christ. This is all part of what it means to seek things above. Verse 15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Our lives, they're secure in Christ. The peace that we have, knowing that we don't have to anxiously run around the world trying to secure our own salvation, should rule in our hearts. We should strive to live in peace with each other because all of us who are in Christ, we have the same gospel message implanted in our soul and beating in our hearts. If we're striving to let that peace rule in our hearts, forgiveness, love, and unity should come naturally to the body of Christ. And I also like how at the end of this verse, Paul tells us to be thankful. Gratitude is a huge mark of the believer. It's hard to be thankful when someone is getting under your skin. But I'm thankful for the body of Christ. I'm thankful for the church. I'm thankful for other believers in my life. And if we're thankful for that, then we'll work really hard to preserve what we have. We'll have the hard conversations. We'll 
will embrace the conflict and we'll grow from it and we'll learn from it instead of just distancing ourselves from anything that could result in conflict. If we're thankful for what we have, we work hard to preserve it. Verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So putting on this new life has much to do with being in God's word. Let the word of God richly dwell within you. That dwell is living. Let the word of Christ live within you. Let it overtake you. It cannot be stressed enough that letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us means that we should have an abundance of God's word in our hearts and on our minds. And as I mentioned earlier, we shouldn't neglect to be in God's word as it brings about Christian maturity, renewal, and a closer walk with Christ. But not only should we be in God's word for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of others. It's a popular passage, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for correction, for teaching, for proof, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. In the Grace New Testament commentary, it says that the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs refers to singing in one's worship to the Lord. And I'm not sure why Paul paired the word of God richly dwelling within us and being useful for teaching and admonishing. I don't, I'm not sure why he paired that with singing, sims, with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Right, when I admonish somebody, I'm not going to come sing to you. That would be weird. It might lighten the mood, I don't know. But I imagine, I imagine that the purpose for this is to show that as our relationship with him deepens through the word of God, that it will show up in how we praise God. And regardless of the exact meaning of this pairing is the fact that we know that part of putting on this new life requires a commitment to God's word and to praise. And again, he mentions thankfulness a second time in this verse. Did I mention that thankfulness is a huge mark of the believer? Verse 17, and then we'll close. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord giving thanks through him to God the Father. Paul closes this section of putting on the new life with instructing us to speak and to act to the glory of God and to again be thankful. One last verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So as we leave here today, if you know Jesus, I want you to take a close look at your life. Do you reflect the world that surrounds you? Is your heart and mind embraced in the immoral things that the world offers? Do you have an attitude of anger, wrath, malice, 
and the other things that Paul mentions? If so, get rid of it. Like taking off a dirty shirt. It's decisive and swift. Replace those old things, those old habits by putting on the new life that you already have in Christ. Remember that Jesus, he's already taken care of that old life at the cross. And you now have the ability and the obligation to keep seeking the things above and to walk in newness of life.